I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. These are racist ideas, race-baiting ideas, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-women. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald, you don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. The footage is undeniably memorable. Hillary Clinton overheated, leaving the 9-11 memorial ceremony. Her legs go wobbly, and she swoons into the arms of an aide. It's a moment. But is it that kind of a moment? You know, a real, actual turning point in the election. Or how about this one? You know, to just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. (laughs) That's what we're talking about today. Turning points. Breaking news big ones, and the the behind-the-scenes smaller ones. The ones that happen in front of the camera, but also way off-screen. The thing about a turning point is that in most cases, you don't know at the time whether the campaign actually turned on it. Often it's assigned its meaning and significance only in the months that follow. Occasionally, like with the Khan family, or Bernie Sanders saying America doesn't give a damn about Hillary's emails, it can seem blindingly obvious right away. Like in this case, when Mitt Romney was caught talking about lower-income voters in 2012. There are 47% of the people who vote for the president no matter what. All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. That that's, that's an entitlement, and government should give it to them. With me is Jim Rutenberg. Jim, you're our media columnist now, but back then you were our chief political correspondent. Remind us why that video clip became a defining moment for the Romney campaign. That was one of those moments where... it. You knew it was a turning point when it happened, and it actually was a turning point. And it was a turning point because it went at all of Romney's liabilities as a candidate. Rich guy, doesn't care about the poor, isn't connecting with minorities. And it it probably hurt him as much with white voters as with minority voters. Now, I went at the time to the Obama headquarters or shortly thereafter, and you could see it in their polling, and they weren't sharing this publicly. And it was a huge, like, basically where Obama was leading Romney by a little bit. When that happened, he goes on a tear. And you see Obama just go way up, and that lasts for a long time. So there was a true consequence to that moment. Like, a measurable turning point. We often think of these things as, like, squishy. It feels like a turning point. You're saying there was actually data there. There was a ton, because the Obama campaign was interviewing thousands of people per night, so they knew it. And and it, again, it lasted for weeks. It wasn't until that first debate when Obama fell again, and that's how they, they, they actually were showing me this bubble. It's a bubble, and the bubble starts at that 47%. So we're in the kind of turning point analysis business, but I want to know what criteria do you apply, both in real time and I guess maybe later on as you get to look backward at these moments to see whether they're actually as consequential as we think they are. I mean, it's really hard because a lot of people declare turning points and they don't end up being turning points. 
when Donald Trump denigrated John McCain's war record, Senator John McCain from Arizona. Turning point. That was a turning point, but it wasn't, right? When George Bush, W. Bush, and Al Gore debated in the first debate, the media was convinced that Gore had trounced Bush. The voters had something else in mind. So we can be wrong a lot. And are we wrong a lot? I think we're probably wrong a lot. <laughs> you know, 47% was so obvious. And I don't buy this that we live in quite the bubble that our critics say we live in. That said, you know, we think about things through a different lens. The average voter isn't solely focused on every minute of this race. So you don't even know what's registering. So how culpable, in some sense, do we in the media become for creating the sense that it's supposed to be a turning point? These images get looped. And let's use the example of Hillary Clinton fainting or seeming to faint outside of the 9-11 ceremony. Right. I think we're partially culpable, but again, because the voters have their own ideas about things, we we don't make things happen. We don't. I don't think we determine outcomes as much as we and our critics credit us for. But when we loop it over and over again, we not only make the event potentially more important than it should be, but we also forget the things that voters do care about, those issues that they're following every day and want to have answers to. So, Jim, we are going to return to the subject of Hillary Clinton later in this episode, so stick around. Okay, but can I put my gum back in my mouth? I'd really prefer you not. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to talk about turning points of a more intimate sort, the moments that seemed especially significant to the frontline reporters who observed them, my colleagues here on the campaign team of The New York Times. We start in May of 2011. Donald Trump is not yet a candidate, and neither is Hillary Clinton. But inside a hotel ballroom in Washington, D.C., the seeds of this presidential race are being planted in Trump's mind. Maggie Haberman is in the room. So this evening at the White House Correspondents Association dinner, it was long before Trump was actually a candidate, but it was when he was pretending he was going to be a candidate, or at least he was looking at it very seriously. And I did a lot of reporting on it at the time at Politico where I was, and it was a big night. He had spent weeks criticizing President Obama. And I remember very well, he got stopped on the red carpet with his wife Melania on the way in, this, you know, beautiful uh, black tie event, the Hilton uh, big ballroom, and there's tons of cameras outside. And Trump got asked, you know, how are you going to deal with it if President Obama addresses you? And he said something like, oh, I don't think he's going to mention me at all. I'd be surprised if he talked about me. And so Trump was in for a surprise. I mean, my table was uh, several tables away from him, but they kept flashing to him uh, on the big jumbotrons. And first, uh, you had President Obama and Seth Meyers. I forget which order they were in. But they took turns skewering Trump. And when President Obama did it, it was in front of 2,500 people. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, For example, uh, no, seriously, just recently in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice at the Steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. 
And basically, it was just joke after joke after joke. And at one point, because Trump had been demanding to know whether President Obama was actually born in the United States or not, and he had insisted he was sending these investigators to Hawaii, and they can't believe what they're finding. So President Obama finally turned over this birth certificate, which uh, you know his his uh, aides went and got from Hawaii, and they put it up on the jumbotron, and it was it was literally throbbing like along with sort of pulsating music. And it was about as in-your-face a presentation as you could get. And you could see Trump very slowly turning red, not cracking a smile, sitting with Melania, sort of hunched over in his seat. And everybody else at his table, he was sitting at the Washington Post table, he was sitting next to the publisher. Everybody else at his table had these sort of pained, kind of frozen smiles on their faces. And nobody really knew how he would react or what to do, but he had to just sit there and take it. There was nothing he could do back. Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. (laughs) Donald Trump often appears on Fox, which is ironic because a fox often appears on Donald Trump's head. So what happened in the room that night basically lived in his gut and he had nowhere to put it but to take it back to New York with him and back on his beautiful plane with him and just have it consume him for a while. And as we have written, it was something of a motivating factor toward running himself in 2012. He had already decided he was not going to run in 2012. It was too hard for a couple of reasons. He re-signed with The Apprentice. But that sort of ember of anger never died and it just stayed and grew and got hotter and bigger and in 2013 pretty early he was already looking toward running for president in 2016 so it's possible that a single night of insults animated donald trump to seek the presidency it is more than possible that a single night of insults fueled what was already an interest and made it grow much hotter and faster and certain that it was going to happen for somebody who had flirted with running before but never actually did. What was going on in his head and, and what does it tell us about him now as a candidate? In a lot of ways, what I w- witnessed that night watching him is what we have witnessed through various portions of this presidential race where Donald Trump comes in sort of ill-prepared for what the norms are, and then he just hits back in his own particular way. So we've seen him hitting back President Obama in his own way during this campaign. A lot of this campaign has been a proxy fight for that night in many ways. Donald Trump came to this dinner really believing the president was not going to talk about him, really believing that he was just going to sit there among, you know, the very well-dressed, well-heeled top socialites of Washington. I mean, one of the animating factors, as you know, for Donald Trump is this feeling that he's an outsider and wanting to be taken seriously by the insiders, even as he reviles them and mocks them and criticizes them. In this campaign, it feels like he's made it his mission to never let something like what happened that night in the Hilton happen again. He has either hit back firmly in real time or he has swung incredibly hard over pretty minor things to try to set the tone, whether it's uh, at rivals on stage at a debate, whether it was with reporters in terms of coverage. But he has done everything he can to set the tone, whereas he had absolutely no control that night. He just had to sit there captive and take it. Maggie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Donald Trump owns the Miss USA pageant, which is great for Republicans because it will streamline their search for a vice president. (laughs) Donald Trump said recently he has a great relationship with the blacks, 
though unless the blacks are a family of white people, I bet he's mistaken. <laughs> It's September, almost exactly a year ago, and Patrick Healy is watching one of the Republican presidential debates. There hasn't been a primary yet, and there won't be for months. And the question is, can Donald Trump conquer a debate stage filled with some of the most seasoned Republican politicians in America? Patrick sees the contours of the race unfold in a single gesture. You had this huge political moment at the second debate at the Reagan Library where Jeb Bush and Donald Trump are standing in front of Air Force One. It's very dramatic. And you've had weeks now where Donald Trump was taunting Jeb Bush about being a low-energy candidate. You know, there's a lot of back and forth in the debate. And finally, Jeb Bush, you know, in this sort of in this hall of, of great kind of establishment Republican history, is able to get in. Donald Trump's face a little bit. And, you know, in, in front of the cameras, he's able to sort of say, my Secret Service code name is Ever Ready, and that kind of connotes high energy. Ever Ready. It's very high energy, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the audience loved it. And it, you sort of felt in that moment like you sort of saw Jeb Bush relaxing a little bit, that these were kind of his people in the Reagan library, that he was getting that kind of affection. And then Donald Trump just sort of slides in by putting out his hand as if to allow Jeb Bush to finally feel good about himself for once. And Jeb Bush slaps it. He gives it this huge slap, you know, on Trump's hand. And you just sort of knew at that moment that Trump had gotten so deeply inside Jeb Bush's head. And this was a guy who had so much money, had so many political endorsements, looked like the front runner for a while but really was going to kind of his tormentor and bowing down. Was that the night you realized that Donald Trump had brought everyone in the Republican Party into a campaign that was on his terms? Yeah, I think that that was. I mean, the night was so powerful because for weeks we had seen Donald Trump sort of taunting these Republican veterans with these lines like Jeb Bush being low energy. You know, on the one hand, it just seems so obvious what he had been doing. And you didn't think that these experienced politicians would take the bait like they ultimately were. And yet then you have this sort of moment where it's so clear that Donald Trump has sort of gotten into Jeb Bush's head, and it looks like, you know, these candidates are basically going to be competing to try to show voters that they're not who Donald Trump is framing them to be. And and that is just the sort of textbook definition of playing on someone else's turf, playing this campaign, you know, on, on, Trump's, on Trump's terms. When you were writing the story that night, because you do on every big debate night, could you foresee Donald Trump not only being the nominee, but a competitive general election candidate based on what he was able to do to Jeb. Yeah, on that second debate when Trump got into Jeb's head, I just sort of felt like, boy, he is really kind of schooling this group of candidates. You know, maybe, uh, you know, a John McCain would have seen Donald Trump for exactly who he was or, you know, maybe a, a George W. Bush would have used kind of his charisma to push back against Trump. But in the case of Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and some of the others, you know, these were flawed politicians in one way or another. And they weren't you know, rock star, you know, political thinkers necessarily. They were people who 
found themselves twisted in knots about how to deal with Trump, how to beat him. And they came to dislike him so much personally that I think there was kind of just a lot of psychological uncertainty about how to deal with him. When you dislike someone, when you dislike a political opponent so much, logic and strategy start falling away and you sometimes play into their hands and it becomes kind of an emotional series of reactions to a political challenge and oftentimes emotion isn't what's going to win the day. Patrick, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Michael. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think, is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. It's February. Everyone thinks Bernie Sanders is on a roll. He's just won New Hampshire, and he's formidable in Iowa. But one night in Las Vegas, the eventual outcome of a Democratic primary becomes clear to Amy Chozik. So I had a down night on the campaign trail. I was staying in Nevada to cover the caucuses. So I drove out to East Las Vegas to a real Latino part of town. There was like a strip mall with some, you know, the Mexican joint. And it was very nondescript strip mall. And I wandered into this phone banking center for Hillary Clinton's campaign. And there were probably 30 older Latino women speaking Spanish, calling all their friends, telling them to get out and caucus for Hillary in the coming caucus. Um, Dolores Huerta, who was the big organizer back in the 60s for the farm workers, a real icon in the Latino community, she was there kind of telling them what to do for the campaign. Um, And I was trying to interview them. I was the only reporter there, and I was trying to interview them for my story, and they were like so focused on calling their friends and getting the vote out for La Hillary, as they were calling her, um, that they didn't even have time to talk to me. So I'm kind of just gathering color at this event, and then I heard about this, a similar event for Bernie Sanders across town in a more kind of middle-class subdivision. So I drive across Las Vegas. Same day? 
Yeah, it was the same night. And like, if you've been off the strip, Las Vegas is huge. You don't realize how big it is. So I drove about half an hour to this kind of very nice middle class subdivision, um, this kind of pretty southwestern style home. I go in the backyard where the event's supposed to be taking place, this kind of stucco patio with, you know, Coronas and guacamole out. And it felt like a party in Brooklyn. There were probably 20 reporters there. Um, and there were probably four actual people, you know, kind of hipsters wearing Bernie Sanders, feel the burn t-shirts. And they were, you know, making calls every once in a while in between talking to reporters. And it felt like they were doing it sort of just for the reporters to see, you know, and I and I just thought after seeing those two events that Hillary Clinton's going to win this thing. She's going to pull out Nevada and she's going to win the primary because the organization that she had with minorities, with Latinos, with the demographic that Bernie Sanders had made very little inroads into. And based on what I saw in that tiny microcosm of a Las Vegas night, he wasn't going to have it in time for the caucus. And then, of course, Clinton ended up winning by a significant amount in, in Nevada, and Bernie Sanders never came back from that. So that seems like a moment where you seem to learn that there's the sizzle and the spade work, and Bernie had the sizzle and Hillary was doing the spade work? Yeah, I mean, that was something that I saw. There's always this question of, would you rather have an organization or enthusiasm? And Bernie had the enthusiasm, he had the momentum, he had the kind of sexy media narrative, the great Hillary Clinton struggling against this socialist guy from Vermont. Um, but when I saw that night, she had the organization. And I'd say she also had the enthusiasm for the people that we don't always hear about on Twitter or you know, who aren't writing for all these blogs about how much they love Bernie Sanders. I mean, this was like a very working class, Latina, immigrant population that was incredibly energized for her. Is that also about Hillary Clinton just generally being underestimated? She definitely benefits from being underestimated. And I think, yeah, I think she had been. I think she had been underestimated. And I also think we, ourselves included, had been very excited about this kind of struggling, inevitable candidate suddenly up against the ropes by this, uh, you know, socialist from Vermont. And we had liked that storyline. And it felt like that storyline was going to continue into Nevada. And had she lost that three contests, it would have been very hard. And they're going to yell at me because they didn't technically lose Iowa. Um, but it would have been very hard for her to come back, I think, if not from if not electorally, at least momentum wise, you know, she needed to regain momentum going into South Carolina, where she had a huge advantage with African American voters. And Bernie really needed to prove that he could broaden his support beyond white voters. And he was unable to do that in Nevada. And this is a tiny sliver of the population. I mean, it's a Nevada Democratic caucus. But it really said something about Bernie's inability to expand his message to Latinos. And it said something about Hillary's ability to muster all that energy into caucus goers. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. Wisconsin voters dealing a blow to both front runners could be a real game changer. Take a look at the results. There is Ted Cruz. Big win over Donald Trump by 13 points. Bernie Sanders takes home a solid victory over Hillary Clinton, 14 points. It's April now. Wisconsin has just held its Republican primary, and Donald Trump lost it very badly. Robert Draper is on board Trump's plane. He's witness to the reaction of the defeated candidate. And Trump, it's fair to say, was not in the best of moods. Nonetheless, uh, surprisingly, he invited me on board, and I was the only member of the media there. Uh, he had four members of his staff who were out of earshot in addition to a security detail. Trump, uh, you know, had a lot of um, grumpy things to say about the medium, about the rigged system that he thought was hell-bent on denying him the nomination. But he also talked about Luciano Pavarotti. He talked about George Will, O.J. Simpson. And, uh, and he gamely fielded a series of questions 
from me about the various missteps that his campaign had committed over the last few weeks. And, you know, even in defeat, he seemed to enjoy being where he was on his big 757 uh, with a guest there, flying from one huge rally to the next, being constantly on television. It didn't feel like defeat to him. And what I began to realize was that those people who had made the assumption that this was a guy whose ego was so frail, who was so thin-skinned, that uh, the moment uh, he saw defeat in the face, the moment the public and the media turned against him would just crack, would melt down, was in fact not going to do that, was in fact built for a much longer haul than any of us had anticipated. So it feels like what you learned about him was through what you were not seeing, which was what, a temper tantrum? Yeah, and in a lot of ways, it was sort of the dog that didn't bark. The assumption was that with everything going against him, this guy who talked all the time about winning and what a great winner he was was now about to lose. A primary people said that Ted Cruz had to win, and indeed did, um, that he was going to be blaming everybody else. I, I did later, Michael, see him fully a week later yelling at staff on unrelated things. He screamed on the phone, uh, shooting out obscenities uh, at the expense of the person on the other end of the line, his then campaign chairman, later campaign manager, Paul Manafort. But it was just kind of this Vesuvian blast that would pass. And then after that, he went on stage to an event and immediately everything was put right. On the plane itself, though, he seemed, again, while not altogether pleased with the results and while willing to distribute blame around to uh, people other than himself, nonetheless to um, recognize that this was a moment that would pass and would be supplanted by um, yet another primary, a series of primaries in the Northeast that he would, in fact, do very well in, which would uh, write his path to victory. A quick cotton candy question. What is your favorite part of Donald Trump's plane? The truth is, you know, the, the plane itself, It's a um, though I do not believe it comes anywhere near Air Force One, despite um, Trump's claim to the contrary, is, is um, quite a large and comfortable and leathery sort of um, uh, plane. I, but I think actually the, the best part of the plane is this large flat screen TV that Trump spends most of his time, if not all of his time, staring at, specifically at Fox News. And watching Trump watch himself on television is this kind of remarkable meta moment that I think I'll never be able to unsee. And listening to his running commentary about uh, how this particular anchor has always been great to him and this particular anchor has been horrible the last couple of weeks uh, is, you know, a window into the mind of Trump that, um, you know, one mile high is um, not, not an unpleasurable way to spend a couple of hours. Well, Robert, thank you for being here. Yeah, all right, man. I am your voice. I am with you. I will fight for you. And I will win for you. Where's all the support for Trump coming from? That's the big question by May. His coalition seems so small, but Ashley Parker has an encounter with a couple who helps her understand. 
So I was on an Acela train from New York to D.C. It was a Friday afternoon, sort of mid-afternoon, and I was sitting at one of those tables where it's two people and two people. And obviously I was sort of curious who was across from me and, and eavesdropping, and I kind of figured out quickly that it was this young Orthodox Jewish couple. He was wearing a yarmulke, he was reading the Torah, and they were trying to get to D.C., before sundown, right? Because they keep the Sabbath. And we started, I think they saw me looking at them and we started talking and they figured out I was a political journalist. And so they started asking me about what I covered and started talking about Trump. And the guy sort of immediately said, you know, I was talking to my father and Trump is very worrisome. You know, my dad was saying, and I agree, it's the exact way Hitler came to power in Nazi Germany. And this was right around the time that Trump was making all of his supporters pledge to vote for him, but it sort of looked like a like a Heil sign. Um, so this was in that moment. And he said, you know, Trump right now, he's banned Muslims, but what's to prevent him from getting elected and banning Jews or banning Christians? And I just see a lot of parallels with Nazi Germany. So sort of on a hunch, because I'd been covering Trump for a while, I said, well, who are you voting for? And the guy said... Well, uh, probably Trump. What? <laughs> exactly. And that's literally what I did. I jumped out of my seat and I was like, what? You're voting for Trump? You just compared him to Hitler and you're this Orthodox Jew sitting here. And he was like, yeah, well, you know, Hillary's like, she's just too crooked. Um, you know, she'd do anything for money. And this was also right around the time Trump had just rolled out calling Hillary crooked. So he was he was really half hearted in his support for Trump, right? Like deeply reluctant about it or what? Yeah, totally. He he sort of wasn't thrilled about either option, but his antipathy for Hillary was sort of greater than his concern that Trump might be the next Hitler. And every couple of days covering Trump, you meet someone who, for whatever reason, because of their race or their religion or their gender or even their policy beliefs, should not be supporting him. And then when you ask him, they say they kind of shrug and hesitate and say, yeah, I'm voting for Trump. When a lot of people think about Donald Trump, there's this assumption that his candidacy is feared in such a manner that that would overcome anxieties and antipathies for Hillary Clinton. And it's kind of fascinating to think about this voter who says, no, I'm much more anxious about my distrust for her than I am about the tenor of his campaign and the nature of his proposals. Yeah, and I think that's what Hillary's campaign is counting on, right? That she may not appeal to say... Hispanics in the same way someone else might, but that they're so put off by his promise to build the big, beautiful wall, right? I don't think she particularly probably hammered out this Hitler scenario, but I do think there's sort of a group of people she expects to get because Trump has offended them or worried them or made them feel unsecure for their future. And not all of those people are maybe the givens for Hillary that that we think they might be. Do you normally use your train time to interview voters? Don't you just want to sleep or listen to a podcast? Well, I always use my train time to eavesdrop, and sometimes one thing leads to another. Thank you, Ashley Parker. Thank you. That brings us back to the present. We're in the thick of two possible turning points, and these are the big national conversation type, basket of deplorables and the health scare that Hillary Clinton had in lower Manhattan. Jim Rudenberg, you're a media columnist. What's the right way to think about these? I think the safest way to handle these right now, and I think it's what we are doing and, and our competitors are doing, is treat them as news events, cover them, avoid being too predictive. Because we could go back in November, let's say the 20th, what let the smoke clear, and we'll say the, this was a turning point because Donald Trump is now the president-elect. If he's not, then this could be that moment like Barack Obama said in 2008 – that certain segments of John McCain's voters were clinging to guns and religion because, you know, they were afraid of what was out there and of the future. 
it didn't kill his candidacy. He lived with it. So it wasn't nothing, but it wasn't determinative. So is it one of those moments or is it a 47% moment? I don't think it's clear right now, and I think we'd be mistaken to lean too much into it. But it's a campaign issue. It's being talked about. Donald Trump is making it an issue this week. That's enough. So, Jim, careful listeners of this podcast will remember that you came on and debunked the story of the syringe that Sean Hannity and many of the right-wing websites were talking about as evidence that Hillary Clinton had real health problems. As you just told us from the 47% case with Mitt Romney, what's really important when we think about turning points is a pre-existing narrative that a moment feeds into in a powerful way. Is there a factor present in the health case that maybe differentiates it from basket of deplorables or any, any number of other incidents so far this year? I think to a degree, yes. It's unfortunate because the sort of false reporting on her health, which remains false, right, and at least unsubstantiated, um, leads into this moment in a way where there's vindication for some lousy and irresponsible reporting. But I think the bigger deal is that the way that the Clinton campaign handled it, they weren't transparent about it. They didn't immediately say that she had had this pneumonia diagnosis goes to a deeper problem in her candidacy about trust and the sense that she doesn't want to be transparent, that she hides the ball, that she's overly secretive. So I think it'll have a more lasting effect to that degree unless we see that the health issues are way more severe than we thought that still does not vindicate the lousy reporting that led up to this. So, Jim, I don't want to squander the chance, given the theme of our episode, to ask you what you think a turning point has been in this campaign. I think for, for me, the turning point has been the realization that the turning point this year is impossible to put your finger on. It's, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Again, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we will be able to say what they were. But so many turning points have been actually flatline, no change kind of moments that I really don't know. I mean, I've thought so many different things were going to be turning points that didn't pan out. So as a spectator, as a political spectator, it's the best kind of race to watch. It's there's a lot of suspense. As a human being and a journalist and a, you know, as someone who cares about, you know, these issues, it's there are some frightening aspects to this campaign year and things that, you know, we care about that that matter. But just pure sport and we should never think of it as pure sport, but there's a lot of anticipation and it makes it a fascinating campaign to watch. Jim, you're the best. All right. That's it for the run-up. I'm Michael Barbaro. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com slash NYT. That's netsuite.com slash NYT.